you know, everybody just thinks horror when they think about Edgar Allan Poe. They don't know that he wrote, you know, a lot of comedy. Uh, he, he wrote just about everything, science fiction. He wrote the first detective novel, which, you know, led to Sherlock Holmes being created years later. Uh, so I definitely wanted to do something with him to draw attention to Poe. Welcome to The Caption Life, a podcast about the impact of comics and pop culture on life and society. My name is Kevin, and I'm broadcasting from just outside of Houston, Texas. Joining me via mostly reliable high-speed internet connection are my good friend Sean from the guest bedroom at Castle Grayskull, and James jumping in from Asgard by way of Western Kentucky and the Bifrost. Tonight we are lucky enough to have a guest, Mr. Dwight McPherson, who is going to be telling us about the comic that he has written, The Imaginary Adventures of Edgar Allan Poe. Let me kind of get that. It's the Imaginary Voyages of Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, I'm sorry, Imaginary Voyages. I typed it in wrong. I also misspelled I also misspelled Allen and James corrected it like it was going to sound different. I, I love that yeah. though. The imaginary adventures. It's like it's all made up. Yeah. So absolutely. We, do you guys want me to do that part again so that Dwight's plug is? Because <laughs> some poor some poor souls will be like, I cannot find the imaginary adventures of Edgar Allan Poe anywhere. Like I can find voyages, but I don't want that crap. Yeah. It'll you know, for fun, I'm just going to leave it in. That's not the same thing. <laughs> so tonight we are lucky enough to have a guest, Mr. Dwight McPherson who is joining us to tell us about the comic he has written, The Imaginary Voyages of Edgar Allan Poe. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So, Dwight, we'd also like to really hear about uh, HP Comics and what your role uh, there is. HP Comics is my production company. We're producing all my... I'm self-publishing, and so what we did is we put together a team, and we we also they're good friends. Amy Sturgis, James has met her. She's a Dr. Amy Sturgis. She is a uh, professor, and she's a lecturer, and she's done all kinds of stuff. But she's good friends with us, and she did some editing, does some editing work for us. So yeah, it's I mean I'm the publisher, I'm the writer, I'm the editor. <laughs> yeah, da, da, da. No, but I do have a lot of great people around me who help me with editing because the more eyes you can get on on text, the better. So yeah, they're, they're friends that have come alongside me to help me produce the best comics that I possibly can. And, you know, we released Elevator that was edited by Amy Sturgis. And that's, I think it's pretty phenomenal. And now we're doing Edgar Allan Poe, which my wife is editing. I just want to go full disclosure here. I've been working with Dwight now for about a year and a half with um, Hocus Pocus Comics as one of his education coordinators along with Tim Smythe. So, you know, since we're kind of getting this uh, podcast kind of up and going, I kind of had to pull some strings and get the boss in here to kind of help out and maybe help us get the podcast going a bit more. Dwight, I'm glad you could be here. What you're saying is even on small podcasts, it's uh, more about who you know than, <laughs> than, exactly. than anything else. Exactly. It's good to have connections, and, and Dwight, we're glad that you could join us. Definitely. Awesome. I'm glad to be here. We've been looking forward to it. So Good. Let's do it. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's jump right on in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, 
as Kevin said, this show is about exploring the impact that comics has had on us, um, on our lives and our society. So we want to ask you, how did comics have an impact on you? Well, I mean, the first book that I can remember looking at was a comic and, uh, you know, they were always with me. I was always drawing, you know, when I was little, I used to take scissors and cut open paper bags and I would draw Spider-Man and Captain America and the Hulk. And of course we had the great, you know, sixties, which are not so great. I, I showed them to my kids and they're like, this sucks, you know, but anyways, so I grew up, you know, with superheroes and everything. And I think, um, Really, when they impacted me the most was, you know, in the 80s, because, you know, let's face it, your middle school years suck. Uh, so, uh, you know, comics like X-Men and, uh, you know, with Chris Claremont and Paul Smith and Swamp Thing, of course, with Alan Moore and uh, Stephen Bissett. And those comics kind of really helped me get through that time. You know, uh, it was it was tough. I was the uh, the token fat kid, you know. Uh, so I was picked on a lot, so I could really identify with the X-Men. I really looked forward to, to getting the next issue. Um, I don't know. I mean, they kind of gave me a reason to keep going on, you know, if you will. Well, Dwight, we only host this, uh, this podcast from the shoulders up, but I think like you, you don't worry about being the token <laughs> fat kid here. Right. <laughs> hey, it's a fat kid's world now. Right. Exactly. So. True. Yeah. <laughs> you got to work on that, Sean. You know, <laughs> work on the midsection. Man, yeah. Okay. Sean oh, is don't worry. Sean is eleven feet tall. He would have to gain four hundred pounds to be fat. Wow. Yeah. Oh. I, yeah. Full disclosure: I'm actually six foot six, and uh, I know. And you never, you can never tell on Zoom. And it's funny not to get on sidetrack, but everyone that I meet on zoom uh, when I meet with them in person the first time, that's what they all say. They're just like, Oh my gosh, you're so tall, you know? And what a terrible problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I know. <laughs> perfectly challenged. So yeah. I'm sorry. If it makes you feel any better, he doesn't have any hair under that hat. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going that way. So <laughs> I went that way when I was 19. So <laughs> uh, you've got to train your height or your hair. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so Dwight, you know, it's one thing to be an avid reader of comics. I mean, I know I read a lot, Sean, Kevin a lot. I, I mean, I know you've read a lot for years, but, you know, it's quite another to be involved in creating your own. Uh, so what kind of drove you to write comics and produce them on your own? Mm. Well, I was in high school. I had a really good friend named J.S. Earls, and he's also uh, um, working in comics as well. I got to edit some of his books and stuff. But um, we made our own comics in school, and uh, we made one, and it was Xeroxed copies. Uh, it was uh, an anime-style, you know, a manga-style comic called Mechagis. And we actually took it to the owner of Jeppy's Comic World in Clearwater, Florida, Name sound familiar? Steve Jeppy. Uh, and he said, hey, I'll buy those from you and sell them. So he put them on the shelf. So that would have been like in 1986 when, uh, you know, so we were we were on the cutting edge, I guess you would say, uh, of the whole manga and anime craze uh, back in 86. So uh, but what what really pushed me, I guess, to say this is what I want to do um, professionally was after I read Swamp Thing Annual Number 1 by Alan Moore 
I mean, I was just like, I want to do this. So Alan Moore really has been a huge inspiration to me. And I, I actually was up for an Eagle Award several years back and I lost to Alan Moore. I was like, oh my God, I lost to Alan Moore. Yeah, you know, that's like a, a crowning achievement and put it in all my bios and everything. No. But um, yeah, so that's really, I had great friends around me who also enjoyed comics. You know, like I said, I was the, the token guy. So I hung out with the nerds and we read comics and made comics and played chess and D&D &D and all that. V&V, uh, &V, Villains and Vigilantes. Anybody remember? Oh, I don't think I've heard of that one. No. Oh, man, I'm really <laughs> You're going down a really here. dark path here, Dwight. <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. I love how well, Kevin was just so blunt about that. <laughs> they were illustrated by Bill Willingham, you know, who uh, got into comics through illustration for Villains of Vigilantes. So, oh, anyway. interesting. Yeah. And a he, bit of he illustrated Instagram. fables, didn't he? Yes. See, I know yeah. my stuff, guys. <laughs> You're so He's proud been of that. For a long time. No, true story. One of my best friends like has like all the fables, like omnibuses, and he walks around with them, and I make fun of him for it. <laughs> it's not, not it's, it's just because like it's 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 one of those like I read comics, but fantasy comics. Oh my gosh, though that's way but that's beneath me. No, I can't I can't be like that. It's I, I I'm I, when anybody finds the comic that they love, I'm I'm super excited about it. So absolutely. Now, Dwight, I noticed something actually today when um, I just happened to be coming across your name. I think you're you show up in IMDb, don't you? Yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I show up in a lot, lot of places. I think I worked on Care Bears the movie. Yes, that's what uh, showed up in IMDb. Know. Yeah, you know, and it never reflected in my account. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the lost years, maybe. Uh, I actually wrote an issue of Fantastic Four as well. Really? I, yeah, and I didn't even know it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you check Marvel's database, I, I've done that as well. So, so I guess I'm doing it when I'm in my sleep. Right. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know. Right. <laughs> it's strange. It's very strange. So it's not you is what you're saying. You're going on record. Yeah, it's not me. No, no. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, <laughs> I should be on there, actually. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the, uh, I cringe to to mention this, but um, uh, Howard Lovecraft in the Frozen Kingdom. Oh, really? Uh, I actually, I co-wrote that with uh, Bruce Brown. He was, who, he was my best man at my wedding, but we're good friends. I uh, co-wrote that book and I wrote the second book, Howard Lovecraft in the Undersea Kingdom. And those have both been made into films. So I should have credit, but there are some people in this world who do not give credit where credit is due. And I will leave it at that. But as bad as the movies are, I, you know what I mean? I'm like, mm. okay. <laughs> and so I'm credited. What we always do is say, Hey, go read the books, go yeah. read the book. Right. I actually, I actually wrote most of the script for uh, Batman v Superman Dawn of justice. <laughs> I took my name <laughs> off of it immediately. <laughs> We don't wait. Yeah, I, hashtag, I Mar hashtag Martha. <laughs> I know now why that movie was so bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it explains so much now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, okay, so, uh, Dwight, so you now have a Kickstarter for the sixth issue of the Imaginary Voyages of Edgar Allan Poe. So we want to ask you, uh, why did you choose Poe for this particular story? 
Well, um, like I said, I, you know, it was tough growing up. I, I'm a preacher's son. So th there's a lot that goes with that as well. Um, so I, I really got into Poe at a young age, started reading his books and everything. So as I, as I grew older, I started researching his life to actually find out, find out about Edgar Allan Poe, the man. And uh, the more that I, I read about him, the more that I saw what I perceived as like commonalities between us and things we had in common. And, I, you know, he was not, he didn't see the level of uh, fame that he should have in his lifetime. Um, you know, he, he was an outsider, you know, I'm an, I'm an outsider as well. Um, I, I've done the traditional printing stuff. You know, I've, I created an original series for DC comics. I, I've been published by image, IDW, yada, yada, yada. But, um, you know, Poe's first book was self-published. Mm -hmm. So th there's the more commonalities that I saw and the more I started digging into his life and, and his works. And I, I really realized what a complex uh, man he was and how diverse his taste in literature was. So, uh, you know, everybody just thinks horror when they think about Edgar Allan Poe. They don't know that he wrote, you know, a lot of comedy. Uh, he, he wrote just about everything, science fiction. He wrote the first detective novel, which, you know, led to Sherlock Holmes being created years later. Oh. Uh, so I definitely wanted to do something with him to draw attention to Poe, hoping that, because uh, I know being a kid sometimes uh you know they they will read teachers will read like um you know the raven to their class and i think sometimes some kids have a hard time kind of relating to that but if you can show them a book and show them about some of uh the struggles of of edgar Allan poe the man and maybe make that connection that way then they can relate to the actual literature and enjoy uh his work as well so that was my hope uh, in doing this. And, and I'm a huge Tolkien nerd and C.S. Lewis fan. And uh, so I just really poured everything into this. And I could do it because Poe loved mythology. He was big into mythology. So that allowed me to play with all the mythological creatures like, you know, uh, man, I mean, you name it. I mean, we, we took Norse mythology, Greek mythology, uh, Egyptian mythology, and we just kind of threw it in a blender. And said, so this is what's inside Edgar Allan Poe's head. Because it's very interesting, you know, a lot of times when we dream, you know, we dream about things we've seen on the movies or TVs. But what did they dream about in the 1800s when they didn't have movies and they, they didn't have TV? You know, I, I, I think that perhaps what they dreamt about was literature, what they were reading, you know, the, the, um, the things that they actually read about. So, and of course, they did have theaters well, but, you know, we know thanks to Shakespeare and um, the, the great plays of the Greeks that, that still exist and exist in his time that he could have, you know, very easily seen those on the stage. So I said, let, let's just do this. All of his interests, everything that he enjoyed, let me put it all together in, in a way that makes Edgar Allan Poe hopefully more accessible because his own works, a lot of his characters show up in the story as well. Um, but also his interest. And of course you see how, you know, tormented he was as well in the last year of his life. And I, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, I, I think I did. But anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it'll be a way that, that, uh, you know, maybe some, some readers who are reluctant. I know my 
my middle son is autistic and he just, he did not want to read at all. So I got him some comics and he started reading those. And then I started writing all ages comics and then he read all those. And, you know, the next thing you know, he's reading the Odyssey, you know, uh, and uh, 1984, reading a lot of Orwell and Ray Bradbury. And I basically gave a list to my kids and said, you're going to read all these books before you leave home. So, you know, they read all the classics that, that I wanted them to read. So that's a long way around your question, but uh, <laughs> I, I think I answered it. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was really great insight. I really like that. Thank you. You know what I find particularly interesting about it is that as a kid, I didn't really like Edgar Allan Poe uh, because I'm a scaredy cat. Like seriously, I don't like scary movies. I don't like scary books. Uh, and um, I was a little bit hesitant to like pick it up because I, I still don't like um, like those kind of things. And I don't know why it's just not a particular thing, but like you took Edgar Allan Poe and you made, made it visual. And I was like, Oh, it's give me like the, it's just going to give me the willies. Like I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to like, like cover my eyes as I turn pages and avoid jump scares and things like that. But uh, I thought it was, I mean, I, I was able to get through the first, uh, the first three, um, the issues and, and what James had sent us, man, it just, it moves so fast. It's, it's very, uh, it's very, very sharp and it's, a, it really is an adventure, an adventure story. And it's, I, I thought it was fantastic. So. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, now that we're kind of beginning to talk about your issues of the imaginary voyages of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, your Kickstarter is now over 115% funded for the sixth issue uh and you've kind of begun to tease the war for terra somnum and uh i was wondering if you could kind of give us just maybe a little glimpse or a little like peek into kind of where you're going with that well that's a very that's a very good question if you've read the first trade paperback uh i think that um you you can agree that it ends kind of like what just happened i listen i just said that i'm only on number three (laughs) Don't spoil it. We we have a we have a history of spoiling things on here. Uh, James ruined the ending of Spider-Man: Homecoming in the first six seconds of our last of our last podcast. All right. Yeah, I did. That's okay. Well, you, you go, go ahead and talk about it. I'm well, still going to read it as soon as we as soon as we stop talking. So, right. <laughs> baby, take your headphones you off, and we'll wave to okay. get you back. I'm gonna check my Twitter feed. <laughs> there you go. Uh, about the war in Terrasomnium. Uh, you know, as you know from, from what you've read thus far, uh, the Nightmare King wants to take over. He wants to take Edgar Allan Poe's place. And so he's trying very desperately to uh, destroy um, our little Poe, which we call Pooh, and, and um, Virginia, and Edgar Allan Poe himself. So we have this war that's, if you read the first book, there are some clues in there. I, you know, I'm not, I'm going to try not to spoil it, but there are some clues in there that point to exactly what's going on in Terrasomnium. And uh, yeah, I don't want to give away too much, but it's what it is. It's a war between the dream child, which is, which is Pooh, uh, Master Pooh and the Nightmare King. 
And that's what the War of Terra Somnium is about. But it's it's everyone's involved. All the mythological creatures and gods that are that live in Terra Somnium have chosen sides, and they are fighting on one one or the other armies. So you know, think Lord of the Rings, right? So that's what's going on. Every great series has a war there, whether it's Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. You know, there's always something in there, and I'm really excited for this one. I mean, it's it's been a couple years, you know, trying to get to this point, and I am really excited for this. So if you've not uh, gotten into this story yet, please do so. Even Care Bears has a war, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I wrote that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Dwight, uh, I, I, I would love to be able to write someday, uh, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on, like, how did you, uh, how did you take a care or a person that like the, the world knows a fair amount about? Uh, it's not necessarily a character like like writing like Batman fan fiction would be, uh, but you took somebody that the world knows a fair amount about and you and you created this adventure around what you knew about him what kind of went into the the process and and did do you find yourself doing that with other characters like oh i've got a really great pt barnum story like floating around in there cuz i'm thinking man that that would be a great like intro like find a character or somebody that that their life exists in what is it what is it called uh when nobody has a copyright on it anymore, I'm totally blanking. Oh, yeah. Public domain. Yeah. So somebody in public mm-hmm. domain and yeah. then, and then create a story around it. That, that seems like there's just a, there's a wealth of stories that can be told about that. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about what you went through with that? Well, it was really a culmination of a lifetime of research okay. uh, about the character, particularly the last, I'd say the last 10 years of his life. And there's a lot you know, with a lot of writers, we have so much on him. I mean, if you look on, at Longfellow, I mean, he kept journals. We have a wealth of, of writings by Longfellow, for instance. Edgar Allan Poe did not keep a journal that we know of. So the, the documentation is very, very sparse as to what we have recorded about what he did and where he went. Um, you know, he maybe is mentioned in a newspaper here or, but we don't have a wealth of, of knowledge, especially about the end of his life. I mean, it, it's a total mystery of, of how a man sets out for New York and ends up dead in Baltimore. So there's so much there and there's already a myth surrounding him. You know, he, he died as mysteriously as, you know, as the books, the impact the books had. So there was a lot to play with there. Um, you know, when you're dealing with myths and legends, you know, th- there's so much that you can do. I mean, I- I've heard that uh, by the time Homer's Iliad was recorded, it had changed so much over the years that that each bard would actually add more to the story and, and change parts of the story. So that by the time we finally get the story, it's a get, like the game of telephone. You know, it's something better. I don't know. I, I, I you know, wasn't able to sample the source material, but it becomes something different at the end. So I would just suggest, you know, if you want to do that, I actually wrote a, a book called Kidini and the Silver Dollar Misfits. Mm-hmm. That's about, uh, there's a legend surrounding Houdini that when he was young, he ran off and joined the circus. So I said, okay, um, yeah, I'm going to have him do that. And these are his adventures during that time while he's in the circus. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And I just did another book called Houdini's Silver Dollar Misfits, which kind of is like a, a sequel that takes place like, you know, 100 years later. 
So, yeah, I mean, if you have a great idea for them and they are in the public domain, I mean, why not write it? I mean, right. people were fascinated with, you know, I know I was personally fascinated with Houdini. You know, I remember In Search of Houdini, you know, with Leonard Nimoy and, and just being fascinated with this guy. And the more I studied him, the guy was an immigrant, you know, I mean, he mm -hmm. came over here with his family and had nothing. And, you know, by the time he died, he was like the number one rock star, you know, right. in America and in the world. I mean, how he did that himself. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So it, it just fascinated me. And, and I wanted to write stories about him where he actually had actual magical abilities. So that's what I did. So do it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to <laughs> here comes here comes the the book that I'm going to write about fourteenth uh, pre or thirteenth president Millard Fillmore solving crimes. That sounds so convincing right now, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Do you think I'm really going to tell you my idea now so that you can steal it, Sean? <laughs> no. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, so the three of us uh, are educators in in some form or fashion. Uh, with James and I having like direct, uh, direct, uh, like in the classroom, um, what kind of impact are you hoping to make, uh, like when it comes to like writing, uh, comics and, and having things available for, uh, like, or with education in general? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I could go to Seven Eleven and pick up a couple comics and a big gulp and, you know, leave with them. But that's changed now. And kids are not getting access to comic books like, like we did. We had totally open access. So where Scholastic has really hit is by putting them in the classrooms. And if you actually introduce comics in the classroom, that's the future of comics. You know, everybody can talk about, well, the future of comics is digital, da, 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 da. No, get it into the, into the hands of students. That's, that's the future. That's going to ensure that we have a secure future. Now, if we can, if we can show, you know, young readers how amazing it is to have beautiful art and literature together, which is, you know, my book is very literary. I think you'd agree. Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. that's what I'm pushing. You know, I, don't want I don't want readers to stay reading comic books only exclusively. And, but I know that my autistic son did not do that. I mean, he went from comics to you know the Iliad eventually. So what I'm hoping to accomplish is that you know young readers can see comics and maybe have you know form a lifetime love of the medium. You know, in Asia, it's not like you know it only. 12 to 35 year olds are reading manga. It's everybody. I was on a train uh, to Seoul, Korea, and the, the benches were literally filled with manga and uh, manga, excuse me, my son would say, dad. But anyways, uh, one person would come along and they would read it. And this might be a 65 year old woman and she'll put it down on the bench. And the next person will come in a 15 year old and you just pick it up and read it and leave it on the bench. And they just kept you know, we've made them collectible, you know, over there, it's just, it's entertainment. Right. They, they enjoy them, you know, mm -hmm. but really I, I think that's, that's where it is. We want to inspire young readers to seek out the classics, to read the classics. I mean, I know that, you know, that, that just makes a, um, I, I can remember uh, getting a note from uh, my son's teacher. She said, it breaks my heart, but I have to ask your son to put away his book during class so that I can, I can teach a lesson, you know, because teachers are trying so hard to, you know, to get kids to read, but right. she had to actually ask him to please put down the book so he could, uh, you know, be involved in the lesson. So man, that's awesome. 
Yeah. I get, so, uh, I get a couple of those every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see, that's <laughs> awesome. I, in other cultures, comics are high art. When I went to, I went to France for a convention and uh, we set up in huge, not huge bookstore and they had a, uh, they treated me like Stephen King, you know, up in there. I, I was with an artist friend of mine that's French, and he's like, you know, they're like, oh, we get you some coffee. And he, you know, my friend elbows me, and he says, no, we want beer. He's like, okay, we'll get you beer. So they brought me beer, you know, we're drinking beer and signing books, you know. I was like, is this real? You know, somebody pinch me, you know. Cosplayers get get uh, better treatment in conventions in America than, than writers. So it's like... <laughs> Wow, this is like insane. It's great. True story. The first time that I ever cosplayed with my son, uh, we had about 50 people want to come and take pictures with us. And uh, I was like, yeah, Madden thought he was a total celebrity that day. But like deep down inside, I was like, I am a king. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So, yeah, no, I, I I completely I completely see that. I think there's a lot of things that we see backwards in this country. We're conditioned to think that we're conditioned to to think that uh, like literature, like traditional literature is is the only way. And we're trying to program young people to, to be the same way, whereas we get further and further away from that as a society every year with what's available in video and online. And mm-hmm. um, and I think that I think comics really do make you or they engage your brain in a different way, because whereas yeah. a traditional book, you would have to read it and use your imagination to visualize the story the comics are written in a way where you get part of that visualized for you but a lot of times you have to um you have to infer some of the some of the this the, the, what the author would be describing uh or infer the emotion of it because it's 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 on the face of the character rather than being oh, like you know ron felt sad because hermione dumped him Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, it's, exactly. it's such a, it's such a unique, a unique thing. And, and, and I, for one, I believe like as a teacher, we have to be encouraging kids to do both, mm-hmm. right? Because, because right. sticking to one or the other, isn't going to help you grow. Uh, and this right. is, this is coming from somebody who hasn't read a book without pictures in 20 years because, <laughs> because the, the books I care about are, and the characters I care about are all in, in comic books, mm-hmm. but you do you have to you have to be willing to grow and and i I make my son like read one book and then he can read uh, a graphic novel and then flip flip back and forth but like i'm like you pick what you want but one of those has to be prose and one of those can have pictures so Mm -hmm. yeah well and and i think even uh you know related to that going back to what um, dwight was saying with like comics and education i can see especially with your comic about Edgar Allan Poe, that's a great way to, that's a great way for literature teachers to take that comic and use that as an introduction to who Poe is. So that way, you know, how many times have we seen or where we're in the classroom and we see, you know, literature teachers spend like a couple of days kind of setting up the background of like who this author was, why it's important before they even start going into the book, but comic is like a really quick, um, insightful way to be able to get the story of that person and maybe, you know, reduce that time by half. Uh, 
to have a conversation instead of lecturing about it and kind of get people's thoughts because comics elicits not just like factual information, but it creates like empathy and context and emotions that you can draw out from the illustrations as well too. And so I can see comics being just a really great way in education to be able to introduce subjects like that. So even if we think about like, I think high schoolers now, all of them have been, all of them were born after September 11th. So none of them know or experience that event. So being able to use that Spider-Man comic to kind of be able to elicit that uh, feelings and experience that people were having after that happened is a great way to be able to relate empathy and to be able to show how this impacted and how powerful, well, I don't want to say powerful, but how tragic it was um, that a textbook just can't really get across in that same way as a medium. Right. Right. What what they say? A picture, you know, says a yeah. thousand words. Right. Yeah. You know? Like you could read, like I used to teach us history, Texas and us history, and you can read about the great depression and the dust bowl all you want, but what's going to have a lasting impact on kids is that picture of the, of the mother holding her, her children, uh, there or the or the guys standing in line for for soup or holding the sign with a resume on it because literally they'll do just about anything from work mm-hmm. uh, for work yeah so so the tying tying the visual to um, the story is 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 such a key I think mm-hmm. it's powerful it is I mean it it, it, it embeds it in their in their memory mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I remember even when, when I was young, you know, like Stuart Little looking at the illustrations, you know, they had to have like illustrations every chapter or so. But I mean, I remember those in my mind's eye, those, those pictures of of Stuart Little. So do it with a comic. I mean, I get kids that recall things from pictures from, from a comic faster than what they would if they had just read something out of a textbook or a document or something like that. And it's just so neat when they do that. And they just, it's just so powerful that way. I agree. Mm-hmm. Dwight, why don't you tell everybody where they can find your work and or le- where they can reach out to you on social media? I'm at hpcomics.net. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for, and we let them know everything before the rest of humanity finds out. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have HP Comics pages on those as well. So, but hpcomics.net, if you go there, you can find all of our social media pages. Oh yeah, our Kickstarter is still going on. (laughs) There's a mysterious voice behind me that's... You know, uh, James knows about that, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, th- this Kickstarter that we're doing, it, it's fine. You know, you, you may see number six and go, oh man, I wish I would have gotten there from the beginning. But you can actually, there's a tier where you can get the graphic novel that collects the first four issues and then you can get issue five and six. And the cool thing about the single issues is that we're doing brand new backup stories about Irving Rat that are only available in the single issues. They're not going to be reprinted again. So that's kind of cool, I think, and as well as other pinups by, you know, some of my friends in the in the biz. So yeah, check out just search for on Kickstarter, Imaginary Voyages of Edgar Allan Poe. A-L-L-A-N. Right, James? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Don't mess that up, because I did. <laughs> 
And that wraps up another episode of The Caption Life. We hope you enjoyed this one. We want to say thank you to Dwight for joining us tonight. Uh, And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you listen to and follow us on social media at Caption Life.